Isaiah 58 and 66, 1 through 6. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like the one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. 
he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in the, their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, um, before we continue, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, you, you have all things in your hands. And your word is powerful. And we pray again, as you have called us to yourself, that right now you would speak to us and give us life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, we have been focusing on this single theme this whole way here. I realize it's kind of dark on one side. Let me see if I can fix that. There, I think that's better. Um, this one theme we've been focusing on throughout has been this theme of joy. Since really Easter, we've talked about how both it is one of the great gifts that we have been given as believers and also one of our great callings as followers of Christ to pursue joy. And what I'd like to do a little bit differently this time is really spend the first half of our time just trying to consolidate these different themes that we've talked about in relation to joy both to kind of help us to kind of put things together and also because I think it will be a good preparation for kind of understanding what's going on in, in the verses that we've just seen in Isaiah 58 and 66. Um, just first to remind you kind of why we're doing that in this order, um, we've got this kind of mountain shape to, uh, to the passage in Isaiah 60, 56 to 66, right? So last week you see that we started with the joy of worship and then we're moving to kind of false worship. And then next week, a plea for help. And then God steps in. And then it finally gets to the center point. And then after we get to the center point, it goes back in the same thing, talking about God steps in, a plea for help again, also false worship, and then the joy of worship. And so we're looking at kind of each end as we're moving up to the center, which is why you heard both 58 and 66. Um, so... So here, here's where I want us to start. I want to start with just kind of like three points to help us to kind of bring some of this stuff together when we're thinking about joy. And so the first truth just to kind of consider is, I, I, and I don't think actually this is that hard to argue, at least not the first part, is that you and I are, are deeply motivated by a desire for joy. We, we long for joy. That might not be the way we put it, we might use the words happiness, but that's that's what we're saying. If I ask you, hey, would you like to be happy? I'm pretty sure you don't say, no, actually, I'm really, I'm gunning for misery. That's that's my goal. Or, or even, hey, you know what, if I can just kind of be flat, I'd be happy with that. No, we, we all pursue 
joy. But the problem is we are objectively, empirically bad at this. We are bad at pursuing joy. We are bad at knowing what makes us happy and going after it. And I say empirical because it's not hard to look and find the facts that show that. So uh, think about even just the last 25 years. The last 25 years, we have more access to information than we ever have had. We now have Google, right? And I just Googled uh, yesterday how to be happy, and it told me in less than then less than one second, it told me that six billion answers came to that question of how to be happy. Um, and so in those last 25 years, we have more knowledge of how to be happy than ever before. And yet here's the thing. If you look at one study, uh, like every year people have been polled asking a simple question, how would you describe your life? Uh, very happy, pretty happy, or not so happy? And every year in the last 25 years, that number has gone down. More and more people have been saying not too happy, and fewer have been saying very happy. We are objectively, even as we are getting more information, you would think that the more we know about how to be happy, the better we would be, but the opposite is happening. Another study, um, Harvard has had like an over 80-year study about satisfaction in life and well-being, and one of the clearest outcomes has been that satisfaction in life is directly correlated to depth of relationships. If you have deep relationships with others, friendships, family, whatever it is, you're much more likely to have high life satisfaction. And yet knowing that, you look at us and our society, people have fewer and fewer deep relationships. We have a harder time. There are fewer people who are married for many years. There, there's an epidemic of loneliness, as, as some people put it. We're actually not very good at doing the things that could make us happy. Um, I think I mentioned before, there it was this interesting class in Yale. Uh, its title was um, uh, Psychology and the Good Life. It, it was a class about happiness. And one quarter of the Yale students took this class when it was available. Just think about it. You, know, you have here people who have achieved the, the apex of what any student would be looking for in terms of just like success. They're at Yale. And what do they do when they're at Yale? They're saying, how can I be happy now? One fourth, more students took this class than any other student ever in the history of Yale. And then when it was opened up just to the general pu public online, 250,000 people registered for it, trying to figure out, how can I be happy? Um, and the interesting thing is actually, if you look at the class early on, it says basically what we're saying right now, that we're not good at this. That our instincts, our way of pursuing happiness actually get us away from what we're wanting rather than towards it. The very opening weeks in the syllabus talk about how there's a kind of a rewiring that we have to do. We need to kind of rework ourselves, our sense of what makes us happy if we want to be happy because we're not good at it. Now this isn't news, right? Like we, we, we've seen this as we've been studying Isaiah. When, when God said in chapter 55, why do you spend your money on that which isn't food? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? What he is saying 
is look at your life. You are giving everything in pursuit of joy and happiness. How is that working for you? Look, it's not. And so he says, let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous forsake his thoughts. And what he is saying is, you need some rewiring. You need to be changed in the way that you see and live if you want to be happy. It's not about primarily changing what's outside of you. You need to be reworked. Now, when you look at um, some of the advice in whether we're talking about the Googling of the six billion things, I should be careful. I don't know if you heard before, my phone suddenly started speaking to me when I said the, the G word, so I might not say it again. Um, or if you look at the Yale class when it's talking about how to be happy, it had, it had some practical advice talking about stuff like savoring and, and think, focusing more on experiences than on, on acquisition. And that's good. But the very fact that we're not happier 25 years later from the burst of information, I think points out the fact that, that we need something deeper than just being a bit more grateful. Although I think gratitude is fantastic. That there is a deeper reworking, a deeper rewiring. And, and what we said last week is that that deeper reworking has to do with the fact that our love is disordered. That, that we have in some ways this internal compass, this joy-seeking compass. And our true north, we've lost it, it's broken. And so whenever we have something that's even slightly magnetic, something that seems good, we latch onto it. And they are good things, whether we're talking about work and success or whether we're talking about relationship or, or things that are beautiful, these are good things and we latch onto them. But the problem is we latch onto them, not just that they're good, but as if they are what is best, what is most important. And that's never the way they were meant to be. We have a, a disordered love. And as long as that's the case, we are going to keep on finding ourselves being bad at pursuing joy. And I'm starting with this point and kind of belaboring it because it's actually really important for us to just pause and, and consider the facts of this. Because I think deep down there is a part of us that says, yes, I see that that's true for others, but not for me. I, I know what makes me happy. And, and the reason I say that is because that is how we generally operate. That is the way we live our life, that our instincts of what will give us joy is what drive us. And, and I want to encourage us to recognize that if we just look at facts of how things are, if we look at scripture, and if we even look honestly at our own life, we will realize we are not as good at pursuing joy as we think we are. We want joy, but we're bad at it. That's the first point to consider. Now, the second is that God is, is really good at joy. I realize that's a strange way of putting it, to say that God is really good at anything sounds strange. But I, I emphasize this because I think in our minds we don't recognize this. In our minds, I wonder if sometimes we think of God as this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present grump. Or if not a grump, at least someone who's emotionally flat. 
I mean, that, that joy and happiness is just kind of a human thing, and God is above such stuff. And that's really not how Scripture speaks of God. In 1 Timothy, Paul, when he's talking about his gospel, he speaks about the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And that word blessed could just as easily be translated happy. The gospel, Paul says, is about our gloriously, beautifully happy God. Now, what do you think about that description of God as a happy, beautifully happy God? It's not only there. Jesus, when he is talking about, he has his parable of the talents, about being faithful with what we've been entrusted. And at the very end, those who have been faithful, here's what happens. The master says, well done, come and enter into the joy of your master. You understand the implication of that? Jesus is saying that's what will happen as we're faithful. God will say, come and enter into my joy. Because God is joyful. If we want to know God, we look at Jesus, right? Jesus says, to see me is to see the Father. What does Jesus say? He says to his disciples, I will tell you these things so that my joy might be in you and your joy be full. The implication of that is if, if Jesus' joy, the joy of Jesus gets inside of us, we will be overflowing with joy because Jesus, because God is joyful. Or think about the fruit of the Spirit. Um, the fruit of the Spirit describes when we know God's influence, the Spirit's influence is at work in our life. So that's why the first fruit of the Spirit is love. We know that God is love. And so we will know that the Spirit is at work in us when we start showing that same love. But what's the second fruit? It's joy. We'll know God is at work in us when we are joyful, which tells us, that God is joyful. God is supremely happy. He has been happy for all eternity, for all eternity. When, when the Father says, when Jesus is being baptized, this is my Son in whom I delight, it's not a new reality for him. He has delighted in the Son for all eternity. And the Son has delighted in the Father for all eternity as they are joyfully bound in love by the power of the Spirit. They love. They worship what is good. They delight in each other. They delight in this divine beauty and creativity and joy and glory. And they are overflowing with happiness about it. So, so joyful that even when God grieves, and he grieves, it doesn't change his overwhelming joy that's there at the same time. His, his joy is so full. Well, have you, ever, have you ever been with someone who is not just kind of fake happy, but someone who seems legitimately joyful? There's a way that it, that it kind of overflows and you start feeling better. And, and what does, what does the, the Bible say? God, in your presence is fullness of joy. When I am near you, your joy is so overwhelming, I taste it. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Our God is overflowingly happy. 
And what we just said about in your presence is fullness of joy actually is an important lead-in to another part of this. We said that God is good at joy. He, he is so overflowing with joy that the very reason he made us was not because he needed us. He's already super happy. It's because he wants to share. It's because he wants us to join in with him in delighting in him, in, in enjoying his beauty and his glory, in tasting the delightful joy that he has known. That's, that's how we were made. That's how we were wired. Um, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. God is endlessly overflowing with joy, and he desires to give us that joy with him. Those are the first two points, that we are bad at joy. God is really good at it. He wants to share. And, and the reason we are bad, rather than experiencing what we are meant for, is, is sin, right? We've, we've spoken of this before. Sin is what has broken our internal joy compass. Sin is what has disconnected us from God. And that brings me to the third point, that if you understand the gospel, you realize the gospel is all about this, that the gospel is about God's passionate commitment to give us the joy that we have lost. So think of the three of the passages that I've mentioned before, the parable where, where the master says, come and enter into my joy. Or Jesus saying, I say these things to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Or even this gift of the Spirit, how his fruit involves joy. Do you see this consistent theme of God saying, the joy that I have, I want to give to you. I want you to be like me, like you were meant to be. I want you to experience my delight. When Jesus came to earth to die for us, he didn't do that just to save us from hell. He, gave, he came to reconnect us to God to make a way for us to experience the joy that God intended for us in his beauty and glory. So even beyond that, like once he has established a connection, God, his, his continued work in us, the work of the Spirit, is, is to rewire us. It's to reset that joy compass so that we can more and more have a taste for what is truly good, to give us a sense for what is the true north so that more and more we might be able to receive the joy that God has for us. Really, every command that God gives, everything he says, every encouragement, every warning, it's all part of his work of, of remaking us, reshaping us, so that we will have the capacity and the awareness to be able to, to receive the gift of joy, of joy in him that God desires to give us. So that really is 
kind of trying to bring together these last few weeks. God desires to give us joy. His salvation is about restoring that connection, and he's seeking to align us with him, to give us that worship of him where we will experience joy. And here, so here's the danger that this passage, the one that we were just reading, addresses in relationship to this. In this time where we're not yet fully changed, we have a real danger. And the danger is that even though now we have access to God through Christ, we can still be convinced deep down that we know best for what will make us happy. We can still be convinced that our way, our pursuit, the things that we have been pursuing badly is still the way we should go. And and when that happens, the danger is that we can come to God And look to God not to change us and to give us his joy. But we can look to God as a kind of person that we're bartering with. Where we're trying to make an exchange so that we can use him to give us the things that we think will give us joy. Where where we can kind of almost use religion, practices, prayer, Bible reading, whatever it is, as a way of trying to manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. And that, I say it's a danger because when we are in that mode, it can feel almost exactly like the real thing of what actual relationship with God can look like because it it involves devotion, because we're passionate, It can feel like worship because we're doing all of the right things. It can feel like faithfulness, but all along we are not actually receiving from God the gift that he has for us, but instead we're trying to use God in a kind of exchange to get what we want. And as long as that's our position, where we still think we know what we most want and need, we will never be able to experience the joy that God has for us. So I don't know if you noticed, but at the very beginning, you see that God is treating this as something really significant, something where there needs to be a loud warning, right? At the very beginning of 58, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice with a trumpet. God is saying, Isaiah, you need to warn these people because they think they have the real thing, but they're missing it altogether. And what we have in 58 and 66 are three different practices. Practices that God gave his people to help reform them so that they could start receiving the joy God intends for them. But these three practices, they are using kind of as a bartering system to try to get what they think they want. So so the first one is is fasting. That's that's what the first 12 verses are about. And, And you can see that God's people are feeling very frustrated. Verse 3 says, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And do you hear what's going on? They're saying, we have done these good things, and yet we're not getting the stuff we were expecting. So here's the thing about fasting. When God gave his people fasting, it was was part of his work of reworking them. When when you fast, it's an act of, of being humbled. 
It is teaching yourself not to follow the immediate desire of the moment that you have. In that moment, it's for food. But instead, entrusting yourself to God, letting yourself even become weak and, and recognizing that what God wants for you is more important than what you want for you. And, and God says, look, if, if you were fasting rightly, this would be different. But notice Notice the way they are fasting. It says in verse 3, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You hear that? They are still pursuing what they think they want. And so God says, look, if, if you were doing this rightly, if you were fasting as I intended for you, then then you would start becoming like me because that's the way this is meant to work. And, and what am I like? I am a God who delights in being merciful. I'm a God who delights in freeing the captive and caring for the poor. And so if you were fasting as I intended and receiving the gift that I had for you, then you would start being those who are concerned about the poor. You would be those who start giving food to the hungry, giving clothes to those who are without clothing. And if this is what started happening, if you started becoming like me, then you would have real joy. So verse 11, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire. God's saying, I actually have a bigger agenda for you than you have for yourself. But what, what do we see for them? Rather than them becoming more like God, right after they're done fasting, what happens the next day? It says, you know, is this not the fast I choose? So he says, it's a day for a person to humble himself. Because what happens after? It says uh, that you, uh, yeah, there's, sorry, verse 4. I skipped a verse. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Your, your fasting is only focused on getting what you want. And so because of that, you're never receiving the gift I have of changing you. You're staying completely unchanged. I have a bigger plan for you than you have for yourself. Now, I think just thinking about this for a moment, I think it's, it should kind of invite us to a kind of gut check. Because here's what, what the implications are. God is saying... In his relationship with you, as you are, are seeking him, as you are growing in your relationship with him, you should be experiencing your life becoming more complicated in certain ways. Specifically, you should be experiencing greater complexity in your relations to others. Because as God is at work in you, he is changing you. And changing is, is messy. And what it will look like is at times you'll start realizing in the way that you're relating to your spouse, I'm, I'm not actually treating my spouse the way I thought I was. I'm being actually much more selfish and impatient. Or you'll start thinking about your employees and realize you have a responsibility for them. And it's not just professional. They're people that you should care for. Or you will start finding yourself really troubled by the fact that there are some people right now who are experiencing more of the brunt of the effects of the sickness than we are. And you will find yourself really troubled 
by issues of, of racism when you hear about someone innocent being shot. And, and the reason I'm saying it will make it complicated is because the process of being changed is going to mean unentangling ways you've done things in the past and not being sure what to do because that's what repentance looks like as God is making you more like him. And the implication is if we find ourselves generally staying put and not feeling the weight of the need to change in the way we relate to others, Scripture is suggesting to you that maybe you don't have the real thing. Maybe you're, you're closing yourself off from what God is intending for you, a better gift than maybe what you are seeking for yourself. So that's fasting. We'll spend a little bit, we'll be a little bit quicker for the other two. The, the next practice that they are misunderstanding and, and not receiving rightly is Sabbath. So here's, here's the point of the Old Testament Sabbath. The Old Testament Sabbath, we think of just about not working, and that's true. But it was about more than that. It was about savoring. As people cease from their labors, they were meant to recognize what God has done, to, to savor creation, to savor their redemption, to savor the promises of the future. They were tuning their hearts to delight in God and the things of him. And it was meant to be reworking them, to teach them joy. But notice again, that's not how God's people are using it. In verse 13, notice that says, you are doing your pleasure on my day. You are seeking what you think you want. And just to be clear, God is not anti-pleasure. Look at what he wants. He says he wants them to treat the Sabbath as a delight. Verse 14, then you shall take delight in the Lord. God wants their joy. He just wants their joy to be greater than the joy that they are pursuing. And, and so what they're doing is they're seeking something less and using this religious practice to pursue something less when God has something better for or finally, when you get to 66, that's the third one, what do we have here? But we have an emphasis on, on sacrifice. That's especially what we see in, in verse 3, at the very heart of this. Now, sacrifice is really complicated. There's so much to Old Testament sacrifices. But one of the key things to understand is that sacrifices were meant to express a kind of self-giving. When you offer an animal or when you offered grain symbolically you are saying lord what i have who i am everything i give to you pa paul makes that explicit actually in in romans 12 where he says therefore in view of god's mercies offer your bodies as a living sacrifice this is your spiritual act of worship it's it's in all that i am and all that i have i give to you and again, we should recognize when these sacrifices are being made, it's not because God needs them. It's not that he needs animals to be killed, and it's not that he needs us. He's giving his Old Testament people this calling, and even us this calling of self-giving, not for him, but for us, so that we might entrust him with our hearts and allow him to rework us and teach us what is truly good and joyful. But here's the problem. These people, once again, are, are seeing things wrongly. They're seeing sacrifices as a kind of bribery. That if they give these things to God, then they can get the things they want. And so 
It speaks of how, at the very end of verse 3, these have chosen their own ways. Their soul delights in their abominations. Or at the end of verse 4, they chose that in which I did not delight. They once again have sought after what they think is important and have seen these religious practices as a way of getting them rather than recognizing that this is a gift that God is giving meant to rework their souls that they might be able to experience the joy that he has for them, which is a joy that is far from him. So, so, so let me just kind of get to the bottom line here when we think about what we just saw with, with fasting and with Sabbath and with sacrifices. If, if we... If we, in some sense, see God as our Savior, but not as our Lord, then we're missing everything. If you see your relationship with God and Christianity as a way of having a healthier family life, as a way of having a better life, as a way of being able to live well, all those things are true, but they're still not it. What, what this passage is calling us to recognize is that God has a, a bigger, more ambitious desire for us than we have for, him, for ourselves. And that is for him to give us him. For him to give us the joy that we can never find on our own. I remember a number of years ago having a conversation with someone uh, who, who said something that kind of stumped me, I guess you could say. He said, you know, I tried Christianity for a while, and it just didn't work. And I, I didn't know what to say. I'm still not exactly sure what I would say, but, but I think it would probably be something along these lines. I... I I wonder if I would ask him something like, what happens, what, what if the reason it feels that way is because you're not quite seeing things rightly? What if it's because what you're after is actually not nearly as good as what God is after for you, and so you don't recognize what God is doing? What if actually God is much more committed to your happiness and joy than you are to your own. And that's why it feels like, like it's not working for you because he has something better for you. C.S. Lewis, I'll quote one more time just because I think he says so much that's good about this. Um, he says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. I began the service talking about we're in a really complicated time, and I do not pretend to understand all that's going on in, in any dimension. But here's one thing that I can't help but noticing. 
there is a sense that right now we are experiencing a kind of fasting, right? There is a sense where there are desires that are remaining unmet, where we are going without and we are being humbled. And there's also a sense at the same time that we're experiencing a kind of Sabbath, where we are being forced to stop a lot of the busyness and activity that we're normally accustomed to. And, and we're being given more time to notice. And there's also a sense in which this is an opportunity for us to sacrifice is maybe the wrong way of putting it, but there is a sense where we are being invited to trust. Where as we are so out of control, we're being invited to say before God, Lord, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And my point in this is that whatever else God is doing, of this I am sure, he is at work through this to remake us, to train our hearts, to to give our compass its right sense, to lead us into the joy, the joy that he has for us. That, that last passage where they were using sacrifices wrongly, he doesn't just criticize what's wrong, he also says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my and I want to suggest that that is the way to joy. As God is at work, even right now, teaching and reworking, to have a humble, open, quiet heart, asking God, please teach me, remake me, lead me into you.